Hi, this is Ursula. You're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. You are listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Cardambicus, and we are on the road once again here in Baltimore. And I am at Pelinor Press, where I'm talking to Jonathan and Ursula about their woodcuts, their comics, their drawings, and their work habits. Um, so can you kind of set the stage for our listeners here at Pelinor Press? Uh, where are we? Where are we actually physically standing in? We are in a row house in north central Baltimore. Would you say that? Yeah. Um, We have an upstairs bedroom, which has been turned into a studio space where we have drafting tables and a computer and art up on the walls. And then in our basement, we have a letterpress studio with... Uh, Vandercook Press and paper cutters and type and all that stuff. Yeah. Is that a good description? Do you want to add anything to that, John? Uh, no, that's good. But it's been, I don't know, a wonderful time getting to see the studio like expand through the house, I guess. Starting in the basement and moving the way up. And now being in this room with just really gorgeous light and the two drafting tables being right next to each other. And the like non-existent tape line down the center yeah, to note like who's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my wall is bigger than John's wall and yeah yeah so are you two often working in here together simultaneously not as much recently um at one point we collaborated on individual pieces of artwork uh so we have some earlier prints where we would pass the blocks back and forth and each draw a little section and then when we carve, do the same thing, passing them back and forth. We haven't done that in a while. Um, I think we've both become busier maybe, um, or our schedules are a little different. But uh, yeah, we do. It it is nice to work together sometimes uh, if we both have a project going and just sort of be in the same room working, even if we're not talking. Yeah. Um, which I know is Ursula's preference usually. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think even if the timing doesn't work up, we're proximate to each other in a way that at least we can check in on what the other person's doing, even if we're not using the space at the same time. Yeah. I think it also, um, yeah, a lot of it's work schedule stuff that, you know, maybe in the summer more of that overlap happens. Yeah. And how about when the work goes downstairs to the basement for the printing? Is that usually a, a team print session? I that's usually more that's usually more individual. Okay. Um, the because of all the room that the type cabinets and the press itself take up, um, it's often difficult to get two people working down there. And once you're in production on the press, there's not a lot for another person to do. Um, occasionally if we have a, uh, wood block that requires some hand inking with a brayer, then one person could sort of do some of that inking while the other person puts aside the last printed sheet and 
you know, gets the next sheet into the feed board. Yeah. So, but, but very often it, it's just an individual uh, process if you're using the presses inking system. Um, and it goes fairly quickly at that point. And yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I'm more interested. To hear oh, no. Well, when we started out, um, you know, we were interested in doing a lot more stationary and like doing these very large runs. It's like, okay, if we're going to sell this for $5, we have to make 500 of them. Yeah. And that has been abandoned. But when we were, were doing 500 of a three color greeting card, because we were stupid. Um, <laughs> then it would be nice to have another person down there because you know maybe you've been walking the press back and forth for three hours and it would be nice yeah. for the thing to get done, but you personally want to break. So there's more of like a you know a switch off that can happen. Which that that leads me to another question in two parts or maybe two questions. One, um, when did Palinor Press start? Like how long have you two been an entity as Palinor Press? And two, can you talk about um, how your audience has shifted or how your intended audience has shifted? Uh, so I think we technically established in 2004. Uh, at that point, we sort of had this rosy vision of creating stationery, and we did some paper masks, and we did a lot of things that like Ursula was describing with say the three color greeting card that we sold for five <laughs> bucks that had a ton of work in them and could never really sell enough of or at high enough price points to make it feel satisfactory. Um, and we were always doing prints as well. And then we finally said, wait, we're more interested in doing these prints. We're more interested in doing these comics. Why don't we start... Uh, easing into more of that kind of work, smaller runs of more expensive items, um, or just you know just getting into that uh, that field a little more. So then we started applying to more to less craft fairs and to more um, uh, book fairs or print fairs or um, uh, I don't know, zine fairs, things like that. Yeah. Um, I think also um, part of that realization was looking around at who else was at uh, like an indie craft show, which is like it's a good crowd of people, but the people who appear to be successful there, and again, who knows what's really going on. Um, We all try to look like we're happy and doing well. Um, (laughs) But also thinking about consistency and branding a body of work seemed like something you need to do if you're aspiring to wholesale cards or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. And I think our collective interests and our two individual interests were changing enough that neither of us cared about doing this thing enough to say, well, we're going to commit to this is Pelinor Press's brand and we've got yeah. a card of every kind of animal that you that your aunt collects or whatever it is. And I can have a card of every type of alien fruit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but we're not going to make any more greeting cards. <laughs> and, and I also think, um, you know, this is sort of an ongoing conversation. Um, for me, not having, making a living being a motivating factor removes a lot of the pain from the process. Yeah. Um, 
if you're always, you know, and again, some people are better business people maybe, um, but if you're always finishing something up and saying, well, did I earn a good wage doing that? Yeah. Um, it's very easy to get depressed and bitter and not want to make anything. It puts a lot of pressure on those craft fairs and zine fairs or things when you're trying to like sell 500 copies of. And then also on what you're making, like, yeah. you know, if the main decision in what I'm making is like, this is going to be a good seller. Um, <laughs> it's just like, I'd rather not. I've already got to do those things to pay the bills and. You know, it, but it's it's weird. I I don't feel definitive or like I figured anything out there. But yeah. de-emphasizing the money part of it yeah seems I, helpful. I really wish um, I could do that a little better. I I think sort of the way our culture or society is set up, uh, you know, making money equals success, yeah. um, and it's very still very difficult for me, even though I'd like to divorce my opinion of my worth from the monetary aspect, it's still very difficult for me to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm getting better at it. And, but yeah, it's, it's still difficult. Yeah. It's like constant reminders to yourself, or at least I, I feel like that going to a book fair with like a new zine or a mm -hmm. new product, you know, right. mm -hmm. and seeing like how well it does or doesn't do yeah, even aside from the money, it's just like, yeah. no one wants it. Yeah. <laughs> I just should just burn everything I after I make it. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I found something kind of funny happening where I'll get really excited about a new zine or book, bring that to a fair, and then that one, just no one picks it up mm -hmm. or no one buys it. But the one that I made for the fair previous will then just like all sell out. Hmm. Hmm. So it's this funny thing. Why where do you it's think like, that is? I, I don't know if it's something where I feel more comfortable talking about it after it's lived for a little while. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes with, with deadlines and how these things happen, the new thing happens like right before I'm packing up to go. Right. Um, so I feel like I don't necessarily know how to present it well mm. or what it is. It's still this weird like alien thing on my, on my table. Right. And maybe there's um, some of that like neediness too. Like this one's gotta, yeah, yeah. gotta survive. So I don't know if, if you guys feel that as well, or if you're well organized enough to have things done with production prior to like the night before. Um, we've given up the night before any number of times. So, yeah. so there's, there's always that that's like, Oh, so you think it's going to be done for the next thing. It's like, no. <laughs> the, the, you know, some horrible mistake was made, and this guy's just going to have to wait till next yeah. time. Um, so, what are you both working on now? Like, what's the the current projects? Um, so, I'm presently working on a reduction woodcut um, that is sort of a maybe an advertisement poster for one of the food items of this world. Um, so it's very flashy for me. It's got a lot more bright colors uh, that I'm planning in it than yeah. a lot of my um, uh, work up till now. Um, and I'm really enjoying the reduction process. I like planning out sort of how it's all going to come together in terms of removing different sections of the 
of the block to get the colors to incorporate in a way that works. Um, I think that works well with my sort of linear mindset. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so it's a fun, it's a fun process and it's, yeah, it's different for me. And Ursula, I assume you have like yeah. five things. Going I on. have five things going. And um, since I'm an adjunct professor, I also have a bunch of teaching jobs that have just reached the point in the semester where my work-life balance is not what it should be right now. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm drowning a little bit in other responsibilities. But I have a couple of woodblocks going that I can just pick up for an hour or two at a time that are more um, text-based abstract work. Yeah. And some little etching test plates that I just sort of threw in the acid at school and want to print. Um, so, so a lot of unfinished prints and piles of prints that need to be signed. Um, yeah. And I, I, I want to apply for... Um, Magic Bullet, which is oh, that yeah, comics newspaper yeah. in DC. Oh, so, th- yeah, so there's yeah. a deadline for that coming up. So I want to kick myself to submit something to see if I can get a comic in there. Cool. Is it an extant comic, or are you working on a new one? I have done nothing so far. <laughs> <laughs> it's an aspiration. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any inklings on what the story could be? No. Well, this one has a. <laughs> <laughs> this issue is themed, so. Uh, it's a stars and stripes theme, I think, with uh, the because okay. they're planning on releasing it around inauguration. So I'm sure we're going to see some interesting political uh, yeah. work in this issue. Um, I'm going there a little yeah. bit. Okay. It's still going. I think it's still going to occur in my world, but there might be some, I don't know, protest action going on or yeah. some things occurring that at least mirror our world a little bit. If the, even if the uh, source of the protest might be very different uh, in in its origin. Yeah. Uh, well, this is great. I'm going to be keeping my eye out for magical, right? Yes. Hi, this is Jonathan. You're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. So, yeah, so this piece um, I was originally going to submit to a book show. Uh, and I think they all required this single sheet structure. Um, and there was a so size requirement. Yeah, and like a size it's requirement. Like this big, it's folded this way. They sent uh, okay. the instructions. And it was yeah. called ritual. So my idea of the ritual was that this sort of sci-fi world where these people go through a process of um, cultivating this plant that they then use in these rituals. So okay. here they are sort of growing it and taking off these stalks, which then get treated maybe, and then eventually are either you know, part of this ritual that you see some of the people doing. You better describe it. 
Um, it's kind of like they're doing yoga in front of a plant. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's kind of what's happening in that color one-page comic that we looked at earlier. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so how do you start to develop the rituals of this uh, of the sci-fi culture? Like, are they partially analogous to something else that exists in our world? Or? I think they are in a degree. I, I don't really consider much of my work politically based, but I do think I sometimes have some things come over. Yeah. Um, for instance, um, you know, I, like I said, I, I don't describe what this ritual is or whether it's sort of, you know, maybe it's purely recreational. Maybe... It's something the government requires people to do because it keeps them under control. Yeah. Maybe it's religious. But so some sort of transcendent experience that comes from this. Yeah. You know, whether it's... Um, yeah, I, you know, they were saying, you know, is it an opiate? Is it right. a higher spiritual plane of some kind? I, I think you're sort of... Yeah, I don't want to pin it down. Unwilling to, to right. decide what's going on there. Um, and then there are some protesters who don't like this ritual and so in one of the comics they're sneaking into the facility and sabotaging the plant by introducing this other little caterpillar organism that uh, (laughs) destroys the pods that are used in the ritual so yeah um, but I think what you were saying is you get more interested in like I feel like we had very very long conversations about well these caterpillars how do they fit in the ecosystem and what do these other things do with the plant like you got very into like the natural history that goes with this or yeah so when you're developing yeah. the world like how much of that comes out through the the comics and the individual individual stories and how much is now just kind of like living underneath the floorboards and I think a lot of it especially. I'm not sure how opaque these comics are because I don't have understandable dialogue in them. Yeah. And so I really don't know whether how much of that's sort of just in my head and people are getting their own stories out of them or how much is coming through. Um, but yeah, I, I like the idea that people will come up with their own interpretations um, with what I give them. Um, and I, I also think that... I. I'm not good at character-driven stories. Uh, so what Ursula was saying about my interest in sort of the world at large, um, of the world that I'm creating, uh, I think is a, a key point because I end up becoming more interested in the systems, however much or little I define them in the world, more so than, you know, this guy's name is Jack and he does this or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, you know, this whole book here is sort of a companion book that's devoted just to, called Feast, just devoted to the possible foods of this world, which is a little silly because uh, for unexplained reasons, they're always walking around in this um, sort of helmet, possibly some sort of protective gear for... Uh, an unwelcome environment or possibly uh-huh. once more possibly uh, something that's just become part of the culture and it would seem strange if no one if someone was not wearing this helmet um, they would be an outsider maybe um, so it seems like it's restrictive of many senses yeah yeah um, so I'm also wondering with 
the world building and showing such a fractured view of the world of the story and how that works with how rapidly you're producing the stories. Like we were talking about writing them or producing the drawings over the course of 24 hours to also give yourself a deadline to finish it. Is that 24-hour time period just for the one-page comics or is it for like an entire uh, book? The 24-hour comics are for the longer ones, actually, ironically. Yeah. yeah, the one-pages I've actually spent probably sometimes, you know, as much time on a single page. They're much more developed, much more yeah. cleaned up. I'm not always sure how I feel about that. Sometimes I like... You know, sometimes it's some bad drawing in the 24-hour comics, but I like the freedom of it. Uh, and I like the expression that I'll sometimes have in the mm-hmm. line work, even if maybe the anatomy's not always quite right, because I'm trying to basically do a full page an hour if you're going to keep to the schedule. It's um, all very like, clean and has a very uh, confident line. Oh, thanks. You know, it's not... Um... Uh, I feel like you're not like losing any any skill in the storytelling through the mm. speed. Well, that's good, yeah. And, and so I, I sometimes try to push myself when I'm doing more planned out comics to somehow give myself a way to not restrain myself and be too precious, to get too tight, um, which I think is always a danger for me. Yeah, Tightness is always um, sort of lurking on the edge of the way I draw. Uh, and I think sometimes it can be good, and other times it it just goes a little too far for me. Um, but I think that your original question with the story development, this act, this came next, this 24-hour comic, and so it's got a lot of crazy stuff in it because I was just sort of putting whatever came to my head at you know possibly 5 a.m after staying up the whole you know (laughs) the whole night yeah all in one room john's doing one i think i don't think i did one that year i did woodcuts our friend Catherine's there and then everybody gets to a point where they're saying oh what do i do next like like what do you think should happen here or what's the appropriate sound effect for this action that's going on Um, so actually can you set the stage for the 24-hour uh, production. Oh, like what that is? Oh, like who's um, all here? Is it happening in this room? Um, no, or? actually, our friend um, Catherine, um, her whatever art making name is Motobus, lives about three blocks north of here. So she'll usually host it. And she, John, and I have done the full 24 hours. Each time she's hosted it with you know varying success, there's been some failure in there. Um, <laughs> she always finishes and finishes early because she draws really fast. And then other friends have come in and either stayed for the full time or stayed for a chunk of time and just used it to work on an ongoing project. Uh-huh. Um, but we typically have started maybe 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening and we'll finish 6 or 7 o'clock the next day. And we'll, you know, make, you know, big carafe of coffee, all bring snacks in. Usually there's, like, stuff to make breakfast the next morning. Yeah. And just sort of bring whatever you want to work on with varying degrees of preparation. Like, I think John usually has some kind of worked-out story arc in mind. Yeah, I think I cheat a little bit according yeah. to the actual rules in that I might... I, I don't... You're, you're allowed to come according to the... I think it's um, Scott McCloud is, is sort of the, okay. uh, and I think he initiated the 24-hour comic. But, um, 
you can come into it with reference material, but supposedly no set story. And so sometimes I will fudge a little bit and come in with some reference material and at least a, a kernel of a story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I kind of like all the craziness I put in here because now when I'm doing the, um, the more planned out comics in the same world, I'm like, oh, how do I, how do I fit this ostrich woman into this world? <laughs> I mean, she's in here, so she, yeah. you know, so now, now how do I put her in? And so, um, you know, I, I start working out other ways that that life cycle uh, connects to the life cycle of the plant, which is kind of everything sort of comes back to the plant in this world. Um, it's a really yeah. wonderful system to have to keep you like producing work constantly if you have like one idea and it's these plants and then you have to fit like the ostrich woman in there mm-hmm. and then figure out like what her engagement is with the plants and how that exists with the planets and why is who are the people that are attending to both yeah these yeah. things so i can see how it just very quickly is like spreading ever and ever out yeah and I, I think that's what i'm system yeah and i'm interested in that in those sort of systems i think like i said more than individual characters um so then uh, Ursula, with your stories that you've yeah. been telling, are you? Like, how would you describe your system? Um, well, I, I, I think system, systems are good. Where I think I'm probably to a greater extent um, relying on those generative systems to create all the content. Yeah. Um, so, so Shark is the only one that I finished as a 24-hour comic. Previous years, I made a stack of woodcuts that I've, you know, I have two woodcut books that probably are not going to get printed anytime soon. Oh, wow. Um, But the conceit with this one was, okay, I'm going to try actually drawing a comic as opposed to carving blocks, which I'm more comfortable with. And I think I was thinking about sharks before. I think I was like, okay, maybe I was thinking about like people falling into the hot springs at Yellowstone. And what if there was also a shark in there? And that's not what I put in the story. (laughs) Um, but I have a book of comics by Fletcher Hanks. Um, and I said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to steal all of his page layouts. So oh, I, wow. I sat, sat with that book and I just sort of opened up to like a composition that I liked. And I was like, okay, yeah. I'm taking these panels because I'm not practiced in comics. I don't really know how to approach laying out a page. But yeah. I'm going to start with these boxes, and I'm going to start telling a story and see where it goes. Like both plagiarism and like comics madlib. Right, exactly. Yeah. And Fletcher Hanks is definitely someone a good person to be like taking. Yeah, and from. and they're so you know loud and weird and um, sort of not worried about outcomes in the stories. It's just like okay, yeah, well, you know, everybody dies at the end. Um, <laughs> Everyone does that. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's horribly, horribly punished. So can you tell us a little bit about how the storytelling works, like not just within the books, but then there's all these single images up here. Are these to then be put into book pieces? Oh, yeah. So this one, um, Castle Bean, is this. There's a comic in front of you, and they're all drawings on mylar. It's something I wanted to try since I'm... I've worked so much in woodcut. Yeah. The way my brain works is, okay, I've got this block. I'm going to put down ink. 
if I don't like where I put the ink, I'm going to put gouache over and then I'm going to put down more ink. Yeah. And then I've got another chance to fix it when I carve it because I'm going to pull out all my whites and shape those blobs I've put in there. Uh-huh. So the technical approach was a way to approximate that because on the plastic, I can scratch it. I can take alcohol and wash off areas. Uh-huh. Um, it was a way to work that approximated woodcut that wasn't as much time investment as woodcut. And then this book happened because we had a 24-hour comic scheduled, and we had to cancel it because Catherine got sick. And so instead we did like a weekend challenge where John and I each chose two photographs to use as reference, and then we used all four that we had to incorporate them somehow into our book. So I think I started with a beach scene, and it had a little dot in it, and the dot turned into this bean that goes all <laughs> through the images, and it's sort of, um, there's a woman on the beach who has sort of a a relationship with it, you know, maybe it's like a baby or an alien she's taken care of, and there's also this long-nosed guy who sort of has a vision of it that ends in destruction. I think he gets destroyed by the bean. Um, oh, see, it's interesting when you're describing it because I'm not sure I ever got that storyline out of it when I was looking through it. I might it. not have meant that at the time. I'm, I mean, I'm just talking now and I'm looking at it. Um, <laughs> looking back at it from yeah. the vantage point, it had already been completed. You can... But I think at some point early on, responding to those photos and what I was drawing, I was like, okay, this thing's called Castle Bean. And uh-huh. then I'm going to keep constructing images in sort of a circular way and resequencing them to think about my spreads and how they're going to go together and it's a loose narrative but yeah um you know probably my interpretation is not the interpretation I expect anyone else to have or if you ask me in three days I might say something different (laughs) would you both say that is the majority of your works now narrative-based or concerned with at least some aspects of storytelling? Is yours, John? No, not, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm, I got interested in some of the peripherals of this world. Like, you know, for instance, what does their food look like? What does their advertising look like maybe, you know? And so I started developing, uh, I guess, ephemera from the world a little bit. Um, I'd like to at some point make some money from it. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I don't know. I think it started narrative based and now yeah. it's, it's, I'm still interested in creating those stories, but I'm also interested in exploring, um, some of these other parts of the world, um, that sort of fit into it. But yeah. yeah. And I'm also at the same time some of this is happening I'm also have work going on that's purely text based verging on abstraction so there's yeah, okay. you, know, this, you know sort of that whole thing of you know starting six things and maybe finishing some of them there's all these different <laughs> things getting picked up and and is the text based work uh, happening in one of the one of your satellite studios It's sort of in the satellite studio. I think there's some stuff. Well, this is easy to read. Oh, yeah. 
Um. Oh, so one of the years that we did the 24-hour comic and it was a failure, um, I went upstairs and cried for a little while, and then I slept for a little while. And then I, um, I had done some earlier work with um, transcribing ambient sound, so sort of just writing down what I hear from yeah. shuffling papers to somebody cursing somebody else out on the street. And so I wrote all that down. That got inked onto a woodblock and carved, and then there's also a phonetic translation of those sound words into recognizable English words. Yeah. So what I have here is two, um, like, 9 by 12 or so woodblocks, one of which has just sort of sound effect words on it, or, you know, gibberish, and one of which has a bunch of English words all rung together. Yeah. Sort of in sentences. And one has been printed and one has been not. So one is all black. Yeah, this is amazing to see. So what, are you going to print the other one? Uh, yeah, this, the other one is not 100% carved. And I decided I wanted to teach myself Japanese woodblock printing, which is like a whole other process. <laughs> so this was also my first attempt and I haven't gotten back into that yet. I think that's going to happen in the satellite studio. Yeah. Yeah, there she goes, my friend. 